Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, a woman who knows that all of this market chit-chat folds right into the guesstimate on the American economy. Francis Donald is at Manulife and does wonderful, short, brief uh, messages and research reports on the concept at hand. She's never written on anything like this Friday's jobless report. Francis, how do you approach the complete mystery of this Friday's report? Well, I'm not trying to get a sense of what that headline is going to look for. I'm looking for a lot of the underlying details. And what I suspect we're going to see is that more people are unemployed on a permanent basis as opposed to temporary. And the duration of unemployment is going to start looking much worse and worse. So while you might see headlines see we have some moderate improvement. Ultimately, the underlying foundation of the right. job market is just getting worse and worse. There are three unemployment rates, the visible one, which everybody is glib about, etc. Chairman Greenspan's lovely augmented unemployment rate, and then the all-in U6 rate, a much higher statistic. Which one matters? The most all-encompassing, and, and this is what's been so challenging about COVID-19 and its ensuing recession, is that the pain on the economy has been so much more sinister than what we see even in headline GDP numbers. We're talking about wage losses. We're talking about larger levels of income and racial disparities that flow as a result of it. As an economist, we're used to looking at traditional economic data and telling you what happens next, but there's so much more happening under the surface here that's more concerning. And most of all, when we look at the underlying picture, we still have 14 million Americans that have to be rehired just to get us back to February. It's very difficult for us to look at this number and say, even if we see you know another 1.5 million people, quote unquote, rehired, we're still in one of the worst, it's the three worst labor market we've ever seen. And yet here we are, we're going to probably hear a lot of headlines talking about how there's been improvements on Friday. It just doesn't sit right. Francis, the challenge for you is you've got to take the data, understand how it's changing, then try and understand how investor attitudes to that data are changing as well. If we got a negative print in the payrolls report this coming Friday, how do you think investors would respond to that? I think they'd probably view it as a call to action for policy and likely some implication that we're going to see a faster move on fiscal stimulus and maybe some additional moves from Powell. You know, for the last month or so, we've been claiming or or trying to highlight that the high-frequency data that told us mid-April was a key positive inflection point is now turning in the other direction. But the key here is not to say the economy is going to worsen and therefore stocks are going to do badly. No. The key here is to say the economy is going to worsen, and this is going to engender an important policy response. The game here is no longer econ data. The game is figuring out how Powell and how we're going to see Congress respond to it. The dominant uh, policy response when it comes to markets has been that of the Federal Reserve monetary policy. And I wonder from a jobs perspective, how much the low, low, low interest rate policy that the Fed has, the backstop to the markets, is actually creating jobs, stabilizing jobs, keeping companies from firing people. Can you draw any connection to the Fed's policies to employment in the United States right now? Over the long run, yes. In the near term, their essential function is to ensure we don't 
see a credit crisis. That, that is their main issue at the current uh, moment. They're doing a very good job of that. And that's why the entire focus of the macro sphere has really shifted away from monetary policy. Of course, hugely important to the way we're trading anything from rates, gold, a whole variety of asset classes, but towards fiscal. When we look at the city surprise index and we see you know, the largest spread between where data came in and economists' expectations, I like to call this how wrong economists are. They've been the most wrong they've ever been for this particular measure. What we know and what's my personal opinion here is that the, the thing we missed was just how sizable fiscal stimulus was going to be, how big the numbers were going to be, how we were going to see two-thirds of Americans who'd be making more than they did pre-COVID. You know, personal income up double digits on an annualized basis relative to last year. If we lose that main pillar of this rebound, then the econ data starts to worsen pretty substantially. And my concern is that as much as we missed how powerful it would be on the upside, we may miss just how painful it will be on the downside. Francis, I've got to say, I like that. Tom, do you like that, that we rename the surprise indexes the economist success rate or failure rate? Yeah, I, basically I, just judging them real time this, as look, the data comes John, in. John, this has been brutal. This is I have no idea Friday, folks, what we're going to see. I don't know how I make a three-month forecast, let alone a six-month forecast. It's really no different than the companies. But, Francis, the heart of the matter here is what you people do, which is count countable things. Can you count the stress in the American economy? You can count a lot of stresses, but we're not using the same measures we did before. And this is why, honestly, I'm more focused on initial jobless claims this week than I am on non Thank you. It's countable. Monthly data is too stale for us. This crisis moved so quickly. So all those alternative niche data points that we're now all talking about every day, the Google Mobility, the TSA passengers, you know, how many people are going to restaurants, that data is so much more important. And what we've witnessed in the past, since about mid-April, is that movement in the ultra-high frequency daily and weekly indicators are what gets markets' attention. So non-farm payrolls, of course, should be the most important number of the week or the month, but it's not going to be. It's going to be all that mobility data that tells us, are people still moving around? And increasingly, Tom, not just are people moving around and our stores open, but what is their confidence level? Are we really reopening economies and people feel confident using them, the demand side of the picture, that's also much more difficult to count. So we absolutely have to move away from those traditional data points and look at new ones. It's very uncomfortable for economists. It means we have to change our models and our forecasting process. But this is COVID-19. We have to do economics differently. Francis, I can hear the concern in your voice. It's palpable. Can you walk me through the scarring and the structural changes, the structural damage that you're really worried about right now? What I see ahead is, you know, we, we have to trade on a, you know, three-month, six-month basis as well, but we also have long-term portfolios, and it's the long-term portfolios that I spend a lot more time thinking about, because even though we care about equities in the next six months, we're in the midst of the largest fiscal spend outside of wartime. We are beginning to see the seeds of debt monetization. Look at real rates, they are deeply negative and likely to stay there. This is a transition to a new system, one that's probably going to see steeper yield curves. It's going to uh, you know, probably create some misallocation of capital. It's probably going to push more money into alternative and hard assets. 
this is the way that COVID-19 actually has these more sinister long-term impacts on the way our system is working. So, yes, I could, you know, lay out why the economy will weaken in the next six months. But what really keeps me up at night is how we need to think about the five to ten year horizon. That's what's changing very dramatically on a week-to-week basis here. It's going so quickly, and yet it has such long-term implications. That, that's where the, the concern you hear in me, John, comes from. Francis, one thing Tom's been focusing on for the past few days, and rightly so, is the negative real yield in the United States, this increasing inflation expectation longer term, despite the ultra-low yields now. What's your sense of inflation going forward? So my sense is that we may actually hit a little bit of uh, some concern about stagflation in the second half of the year. Now, I'm not a raging inflation bull. Our models say we get to 2.5% inflation. The market thinks something a little bit under 2 But in the second half of the year, a lot of those base effects are going to drop out on inflation. And I'm sure I'm going to have portfolio managers asking me, have we underappreciated how much inflation is in the system? I also think we need to move away from the idea that monetary policy is the source of inflation and remember that deglobalization and huge fiscal spends with with large fiscal multipliers, that may be where inflation is coming from. So I do expect the market to raise those inflation expectations. I do expect uh, real rates to continue to trend lower, remain negative for a long time. And that is, of course, going to push more money into search for yield opportunities. It is still bullish. Yes, gold. Francis, great to catch up with you. As always, my best to you and yours. Francis Donald there of Manual Life Asset Management speaking, Tom, to the importance of claims this Thursday. Right now, a synthesis, and we can do that with Jeffrey Yu of BNY Mellon. He just does wonderful work, yes, in the foreign exchange space, but much wider than that. Jeffrey Yu, let me just start uh, with the conundrum of these low interest rates. Is your attention on the nominal, the current rate, or are you focused on real yields? Absolutely real yields, you know, because that ties into financial conditions. And that is what central banks don't want to tell you. But what they're actually doing with yield curve control is depressing nominal, get inflation up, get inflation to escape velocity and depress real yields, because that's the real thing, um, pardon the pun, which helps corporates. So, Jeff, that's the objective right now in the United States. You think yield curve control is happening, whether they formalize it and announce it or not? So, in effect, I think that's what the market's pricing in. And, um, and as you say, if a central bank doesn't announce it, but if you keep markets believing for long enough and such that it's effectively priced in, then the central banks um, in general, not just in the U.S., but elsewhere in the U.K. here, I think they'll just um, clap their hands and say, um, job well done. It's always about expectations. If they can get long, longer-dated inflation expectations up, then it's a job done. But that's the missing piece of the puzzles right now. Nominal, not moving, inflation even less. Do you think they can? Jeff? So now this debate about whether they want to start to target average inflation, you know, not just spot inflation, but inflation over a period, I don't think we're there yet. They can, you know, when they start to say, we really want inflation to fly over a five-year horizon. If your starting point is one, then for the sake of argument, it doesn't matter that your end point is four or five, as long as you average out to be two or three. You need something like that enshrined in a remit. So the Fed's monetary policy review is coming up. Um, UK, they're reviewing this, you know, all the time. Once that is enshrined, then markets may begin to believe it. But we're not there yet. Jeff, I want to talk about the reaction function from the Federal Reserve 
Reserve Monetary Policy setting uh, going to purchase some of these longer dated bonds as the U.S. Treasury announces a near $1 trillion borrowing plan in the next three months. Is this basically plunge protection control? Is this basically the Fed that's going to prop up asset prices indefinitely until you get some rip-roaring inflation, which isn't on the horizon, and it's not a matter of any kind of bleed-through to the underlying economy at this point? Well, I don't think any central bank will actively admit that. But they do know if you do get a market sell-off, if you do get bond sell-off, equity selling off, that is a tightening in financial conditions. Now, in reality, you know, the economy, if it's growing fast enough, might be able to withstand that hit. But no central bank, you know, wants to take the chance right now. So they'll just keep going until uh, we get to escape velocity. But the RBA decided, I know they once said, uh, so they're in yield curve control already as are the Japanese, they might start to say, we're controlling a part of the curve we're comfortable with, but if the very long end, that starts to steepen um, due to inflation being priced in, they're okay with that. But they have a set target right now, and they're absolutely going to stick to it with asset purchases. Right now, the real rates on 10-year is a negative 1.05%. What's the breaking point here? So the breaking point, again, is when uh, there are two ways to think about this. One, is it a breaking point to the downside, whereby you fall into a Japan-like scenario where no matter how low you depress real rates, um, it's just not going to work due to demographics, due to productivity. Then the markets just say, we might as well go home, get out of equities, just stay in cash. There's no difference. Or there's going to be a loss of control, a loss of credibility, upside inflation risk. Um, But I think right now, central banks are more worried about downside disinflation, deflation, that word is still forbidden for them. Yeah, but with the, to Lisa's brilliant question, Jeff, you were doing yield curve control sort of kind of like and that you just correctly stated they're worried about disinflation and downside moves. What do you see in the 10 year tips when you see that I see convexity and some form of gentle acceleration to a Japan like very low real yield? Uh, well, you know, that is um, something that you know, central banks will just have to uh, try to you know, manage as tightly as possible. What is their tolerance threshold? You look at the five-year break-evens right now, it's falling again. It's, it's below, you know, one, 150. So um, do you want to contain that to make sure it doesn't just soar uh, as a sign that central, bank is doing, uh, that the central banks are being too effective? Or do you just want to keep it in a range right now? The trajectory matters. We've gone from effectively zero in March down to one and a half. They're happy to keep that pace. Even if it goes to two, they're happy with the pace. But if it suddenly just expands exponentially, then that's the loss of control, loss of credibility we talked about. The risk is always you don't know you've lost control, lost credibility until you actually lose it. And I think that's a risk that all central banks will have to take right now. Well, Jeff, let's get to what that means in the FX market, the relative story of a currency pair with the US dollar on the one side. How would you push this through G10 right now? Well, so right now in G10, irrespective of what the RBA said overnight, I'm still very comfortable owning Aussie. Aussie is the best reflation play right now. They've got some China tailwinds in terms of the iron ore market. Property is reflating there. And in terms of trade, um, are uh, improving. Elsewhere, euro, we're comfortable in adding to euro longs, um, uh, even uh, if we get a bit of a short-term correction. I am a bit more concerned about the ECB being worried about disinflation due to strong euro. Um, But overall, it's um, more and more clients are are asking about the dollar debasement narrative. Are we seeing a shift? Is China going to push for a second win for renminbi internationalization? That, as a structural story, is going to be really, really interesting to see. Okay, Jeff, but for now, Euro and Aussie. Two stories here. This is really, 
really important. If someone says to me they like the Aussie, they like the Euro, I'm thinking they think mm. we're going to get a pickup in cyclical growth, the return to risk appetite. But when they say we're talking to clients about dollar debasement, there's something else happening there. Which one mm. is it, Jeff? Mm. One is the short-term cyclical uptick of Europe and Australia get their COVID reaction functions right with government investment, and you're seeing that in Europe and Australia, then that's a cyclical upturn for the dollar story. And it's also a renminbi, a euro, a what is the future for reserve currencies? What is the future for currencies full stop in this new policy paradigm that we have? Then will the dollar's relationships to risk, to cash, to everything else, will that start to change? You've got the one-year story versus the 10, 20-year story. Jeff, I can't let you go without without nailing you on this. Did you ever think that we'd be talking about the loss of reserve currency status with the dollar index in the 90s? Um, So it's not about full loss of reserve status. It's loss of dominance. The U.S. dollar will always be a reserve currency, um, but will it always be 60, 70 percent, you know, 90 so dominant in terms of payments, 45 percent of FX transactions, those numbers. They plateaued a long time ago. The only direction is probably lower. But is that a one-year story or a 10-year story? Let's look at the policy mix. Jeff, fantastic to catch up with you, as always. Jeff Yu of BNY Mellon. Let's do this. Let's have our conversation of the day and the foundational theories of this economy in this central bank. There is no one across the Atlantic better qualified than John Riding. His original work with Mr. Malpass at Bear Stearns years ago, now at Breen Capital as their chief economic advisor. Mr. Riding has public service to the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve System and is definitive on the underlying theories of the Fed. John, what's the theory of this Fed? Well, it's clearly shifting to do whatever, and it's a shift that's been in process for a while, to do whatever it can to support the labor market, to support minority and underprivileged groups within the labor market that have suffered higher unemployment rates over the years and paying less attention and increasingly less attention to price stability. I mean, the good news is inflation is low, um, but, but I think... The the bad news is it it puts too much onus on the Fed when, as we know from what happened in the second quarter, fiscal action and timely fiscal action is much more important for stabilizing the real side of the economy. What is the statistic that you have in your head over how much this stimulus should be right now. I mean, everyone says the Republicans are undershooting at $1 trillion. Maybe the Democrats are at $3 trillion. Do you have a number in your head over the next year where the fiscal stimulus is going? Could it be $5 trillion? Well, I don't have a number because I don't know how the virus is going to play out. And I don't know how the um, medical response is, particularly a vaccine and the timing of the vaccine is going to play out. But we need a fiscal bridge and a monetary bridge across the chasm in economic activity. Now, the economy has rebounded very nicely in May and June. And we'll find out later this week about how July began. But it looks like the pace of improvement has significantly flattened out. Uh, And you pointed out um, earlier uh, in the show uh, about my former center fielder when I was at the New York Fed, uh, Hitman Harris, Ethan Harris. um, And uh, I agree with him. The number could be a million, but we wouldn't be surprised by a negative print in, in terms of some of the things that we see. So if there's uncertainty about what happened last month, given the data that we have, on July. It's impossible to know how the next six to nine months are going to play out. My guess is that by the end of this year, 
we will still have a substantial amount of unemployment, perhaps an 8 9%, maybe higher unemployment rate. Uh, and that's a lot of people who are unemployed through no fault of their own. I think the good news is in the short run, uh, and it's something we've been pointing out, that the income support was a, a, was such that it more than replaced the lost wage income in total. So there is a savings cushion, and we estimate that savings cushion through the second quarter to be an additional savings of $925 billion. So it's not a, it, it, it's not a shock. Uh, it's a problem for many households, but in total, it, it's not going to be quite the shock that some people's calculations suggest. But I certainly think we need uh, to extend some form of uh, uh, extended unemployment benefits here. John, forgive me because these are serious issues, but did you really used to call Ethan Harris Hitman Harris? <laughs> I absolutely did. He was a centre fielder and cleanup hitter. For the New- did anyone else? For, for, the New York, the, for the New York, well, I used to, I, I, I I coached and managed the uh, New York Fed research softball team, and, and Ethan was my uh, uh, center fielder and cleanup hitter, and he got a lot of hits. So, yeah, I, I, I gave nicknames to everyone in the game write-ups, and uh, uh, Ethan was Hitman Harris. I love this. Just not a name I would ever give to Ethan Harris <laughs> of Bank of America. John, let's talk about the new era for central banking. You touched on the price stability mandate. It came out of the 1980s with Mr. Volcker, the obsession with price stability, the war against inflation. Then came the independence into the 90s. And I just wonder what this new era is, John, where this is going and what it looks like and whether it's the right move to leave behind the work of the last several decades. Um, I, I don't think it is. Look, obviously, this pandemic is unlike something that we have faced in the last 100 years. I mean, the last time the U.S. faced a, a pandemic of this magnitude, the Federal Reserve System was four years or so old. Uh, and we had a very different view of the role of uh, central banks back uh, b- back in those times. <clears throat> so I do understand that the here and now is focusing on the economy, focusing on unemployment. And that's appropriate. But I think that this obsession that we have to raise the inflation rate to 2%, when I can find no serious work that says, unless you have a collapse in price level like we had in the Great Depression, running an inflation rate that's half a percent or so lower on average than 2% is a bad thing and that we have to elevate the inflation rate. I find that a a, a curious and and somewhat misplaced obsession. And and John, that goes to the heart of your work over all these decades. Is there any proof that a central bank can quote unquote catch up with elevated inflation? Well, you you know, I I was chatting uh, to uh, Charles Plasser, Uh, obviously, you know him, a former uh, Federal Reserve On the show the other day. Uh, On the show the other day, and I chatted to him after your show. Um, And he, he made the point, and it's a point that I agree with, that if you haven't been able to hit an inflation target and you keep on saying that that's what you want to accomplish, then you are in danger of undermining your credibility when it perhaps comes to other important things. And I think that's a tremendously, tremendously important point, because if there's no economic damage being done by an inflation rate of one and a half percent, in fact, there may even be economic benefits. I don't know that any if you tap a person on the street, socially distanced and wearing masks and ask them, um, you know, is the inflation rate too low for you. I don't know. Many people would say, oh, oh yes, it's too low. I'd like to have my the purchasing power oh. of the 
dollars in my pocket eroded more quickly. Uh, and and I, I don't know anyone who would do that. And yet there is there's this sort of ac academic view at the Fed that somehow the economy would perform better at a 2% inflation rate over time than at a 1% or 1.5% one well, inflation John, rate. hold on. Hold on here. Because the idea, especially as the United States adds more and more debt and as companies add more and more debt, the whole theory is that we could inflate away these debt loads, that basically the rate of inflation will make money cheaper so that it will be easier to pay back this debt. What are the consequences if that doesn't happen? How much do taxes have to go up, especially if we don't see growth pick up at a at a faster speed than it is now. But you will not find that theory uh, espoused at the Fed. You will not find people at the Fed who say the reason we want a higher inflation rate is to inflate away the debt. Because over time, what do we get? We get the Fisher equation from Irving Fisher. Um, we get higher inflation expectations, <clears throat> and that will push up interest rates. And that's something the Fed would resist. So the Fed would then have to buy more and more debt through QE. And that has the potential to be right. a, a dangerous <clears throat> spiral. So no, the Fed thinks the economy would work better if people believe the inflation rate's going to be 2%. The funny thing is there are studies that show, and it's a very, very comprehensive study. 26,000 people uh, responded to the study. 40% of them thought that the inflation rate was 10% or higher. The public, in general, well, don't really understand the nuances of inflation, and certainly not the measurement nuances between a 1% or 1.5% okay. inflation rate and a 2% one. John, i got time for one more question. We are seeing an unraveling in the real yield. The 10-year tips just hit a new low, negative 1.06. Folks, the 30-year bond, uh, 1.19 handle right now. Do you have in your mind what the Fed does if we get a gamma, we get a convexity, we get an acceleration in the decline of the real yield? Well, I explained that in a note that <clears throat> um, uh, we put out on Friday, which, and it goes back to the Fisher equation, which is the Fed is trying to repress through zero interest rate policy in QE, the nominal yield. And it's doing that quite yep. successfully. You report <clears throat> 52 basis points. They, they they're trying to get people to believe in a higher inflation rate, and people are believing in a higher inflation rate, and so inflation expectations are moving up, inflation break-evens are moving up, and the Fed can't repress that. They, they want that to go higher, so they're left with the real yield, which is the residual, which has to be forced negative. So I don't believe the real yield of negative 1% is somehow truly a growth reading for the outlook for the U.S. over the next 10 years. It is a residual from a combination of interest rate repression okay. on the nominal <clears throat> yield and rising right. inflation expectations, which is also an active Fed uh, policy uh, desire. What you just heard there from Mr. Riding is definitive riding, and this is so important, John, is the, re is the real yield the residual of the function, or does it initiate the function? John, that is the arch debate of modern economics. John Riding of Bring Capital. John, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Craig Moffat, Michael Nathanson, always smart on streaming, on entertainment, on content, in the distribution of that content. Joining us now, supposedly on Disney's earnings, although we're not going there, is Michael Nathanson, founding partner, senior uh, research analyst. Michael, you have a sidecar uh, uh, skill of looking at some of these new technologies like Snap and the rest of them. Is TikTok a valid 
platform to raise revenues, whomever buys it. Yep. Morning, Tom. I think it is. You know, the engagement is there. Um, it's, it's, you know, what we've seen in traffic this, this, this year has been incredible, right? The, it's really risen in terms of uh, time spent and usage. So I think, I think it, it can monetize, and uh, that will change. You know, if it's owned by Microsoft, it's going to change the dynamic of, the, of this industry. Even when Instagram was taken out, and folks, Sarah Fryer of Bloomberg owns a high ground on this in her wonderful book on Mr. Seistrom and Instagram. But Michael Nathanson, is this somewhat equivalent to Instagram where we all underestimated what Facebook would do with Instagram? Are we doing the same thing here? Oh, without a doubt, Tom. Even a couple years ago, they started um, you know, in, bringing in stories, Instagram stories, and I, I myself you know, had doubts whether or not they can monetize stories because it's just a different format, different consumption pattern. But they've done it really well, right? So um, where there's engage, where there's engagement on mobile phones, there's monetization. That's just what we've learned. So, yep, I, th- I think that's right. I think it's a really good analogy. Uh, Michael, how does Snapchat do it, though? And actually, who does Snapchat take eyeballs away from? Oh, you mean with, with TikTok? No, so, so our view is... Take, you know, at this point, because we're such a strange time when everyone's, people are out of school, people working from home, it looks like all boats have risen. But we think over time, logically, if TikTok, uh, sorry, TikTok, you know, does keeps doing well, it's going to hurt Snap and Instagram, right? It's it's a similar demo, and you would think over time it's going to hurt them on on consumption. And on, on advertising, right? there's going to be a new competitor taking ad dollars away uh, from those two bigger companies. Is this a, the deal of a lifetime for Microsoft or the deal of a decade? <laughs> uh, it depends on the price, right? It depends on the price. As Tom noted at Instagram, uh, you know, Facebook paid our little for Instagram. Um, it depends on the price, but you know what? It's interesting to me that, that they're, they want to get into this business, right, because they really not show much interest in a consumer business like this. So it kind of, to, to us, it really questions, like, where, where do they want to go with this? What do they see? So you know what? It's a, deal, it's a deal of a decade in terms of a change of strategy, I think. Craig from Manhattan emails in and says, ask him a question about Disney. Let's go there, Michael. On Walt Disney, on Walt Disney, it was trading at 110, streaming revenue, moonshot to 150, and down we go. It's what we call, folks, a red zone, green zone chart. Uh, Michael Nathanson, does Disney have the ability to get up into the green zone, $150 per share? Tom, we downgraded Disney back in early May, so my answer would be no. Uh, not for the not for the the near term, right? The just the headwinds in their legacy businesses and parks and movie theater, movies and live sports and cable networks. There's so much pressure uh, pushing pushing those businesses the wrong way. Yes, they've got a great streaming story at, at Disney Plus. That's mm-hmm. that that's great news. But where they make money, uh, where they really you know drive cash flow, there's so many headwinds. You know, so it's, no, we, we thought it's going to take some time. In fact, you know, I've been surprised how resilient Disney's been during this crisis because in 
previous downturns, the stock would have been hit much harder, right. you know, and it hasn't been. Mike, I loved when you were in that episode in season two of Succession. James Murdoch walks <laughs> away uh, from uh, News Corp. Mr. Murdoch, the son of uh, Rupert, and there's the whole family tension and all that. Great. How does News Corp fare? Not so much without James Murdoch, but just as the generation passes on, what's your update on News Corp as an entity? Okay, so we don't cover News Corp, know, but, I'm quite, but I'm quite familiar with it. You know, there's, there's this interesting dynamic in News Corp. They own the Wall Street Journal. If you look at where the New York Times has moved to in terms of its enterprise value, you know, embedded in News Corp is the Wall Street Journal. And I would think that the company would start focusing on maybe cleaning up. They have a lot of disparate assets there. And, you know, given, again, what we're paying for the New York Times and, and that, that narrative, I would think News Corp has to look at its, its asset base and start trying to figure out what can they do to jettison assets that are not that relevant anymore, right? And it's, it worked for Fox, right? So we would come on and talk about Fox for all those years, and Fox started to work because Rupert decided to break the company up and sell it to Disney. And it doubled, it doubled in a year. And I think, you know, News Corp, the question for me is, you know, how motivated are they to kind of clean up the asset base and focus in on the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones to, to get investors to pay more attention to it? Michael, if you were to, you know, put in, in a snapshot exactly what COVID-19 does for a lot of media and telecoms, does it just accelerate a trend that was already there or does it make them change course? Yeah, it it, 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 it it does both. You know, what we've found and we've written about is over our career, we've seen these types of crises really accelerate trends, but also break patterns that you thought were, were wobbly. So, you know, this time around, cord cutting is going to accelerate. Um, the, the, you know, the decline of linear entertainment viewing will accelerate. Advertising may not come back. To, you know, to legacy TV the way that we, you know, it has in the past. So it's going to force, it's, it's made Netflix, you know, a king because of it, but it's going to force all the companies to, to deal with that, right? And many of them, unlike Disney, were not ready for this transition. So they're going to have to catch up and spend more money. And I don't know if they have, you know, the will to do it because it's really expensive to compete in streaming. So to me, this, this, was, this has been a terrible outcome for the legacy media industry, just terrible because, you know, it, it just made Netflix and digital so much stronger so quickly that I'm really, I'm really quite down on kind of the long-term future of a lot of our, our companies here. All right, Michael, thank you so much. Michael Nathanson there at Moffitt Nathanson, founder, founding partner and senior research analyst. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.